You're listening to the Renovation Church Sermon Podcast. For more information on services and events at our Simpsonville and Greenville locations, visit us online at therenovation.church. Today's message is presented by our Greenville teaching pastor, Matt Humphrey. This Wednesday night, we had a worship night in Simpsonville. It was a great time to worship, and we, we prayed. Um, and on the way home, um, I had the kids with me, and we're driving into my neighborhood, and right over uh, the sky, a shooting star uh, like shot right across. And my 13-year-old is sitting in the front seat, and his immediate response was, Dad, a drone! <laughs> And I was like, no, dude, that's a, that's a shooting star. He's like, no way. I'm telling you, that's a drone. I'm like, trust me, it's a shooting star. Like, I, like one, we grew up always watching the meteor showers, but it was just like, it was interesting to me that his first reaction uh, was that it was a drone. And mine was like, no, it was, and so we, we talked about it a little bit, but it was, it was comical because uh, based on our experiences and, and our uh, knowledge, we kind of frame up um, what we perceive and what we experience through that lens. And why I mention this is because as we're looking at the names of Jesus, for, for thousands of years throughout the, New, for, throughout the Old Testament, there's the pointing, even in, in Genesis, there's pointings of the Messiah who would to come. And there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of prophecies about Jesus, about how he would be born, how he would be born, about where, about what he would accomplish, about what he would be called, about all of his, his ministry, his life, all of these things pointing to, to Jesus. And so the framework of God's people is in the lens of their political environment, in the lens of what they're experiencing. They've had this perception of how he would come. And then we have all of this pointing forward and then you end the Old Testament, and before you start the New Testament, there's 400 years of silence. 400 years of, of just waiting, of, of our hearts aching and yearning for the coming Messiah. Um, and Jesus fulfilled over 350 of these messianic prophecies. And, and why this is so important and why we are focusing on the names of Jesus uh, is because the names reveal who he is. The names reveal the promises that we have um, attainable in those names, and the promises or the, the names reveal his nature. Um, and so one of the names we're going to actually look at this morning is a, um, probably one of them that you would think well, there's no explanation needed. It's a very common name, but yes, also very incredibly complex. And the name we're going to talk about today is the Son of God. The Son of God, we're also going to look at the Son of the Most High or Son of Man. Uh, and we see this name used so much. One, it reveals to me that the Lord made it incredibly personal. Um, God could have done whatever he wanted. Uh, God could have, have made the story of redemption of humanity. He could, have, he could have wrote that story however he wanted. It could have just been a messenger. It could have been uh, an advocate. It could have been anybody, but he chose to make the story. He chose to make your story and my story one where it wasn't just someone, but he himself God, the Son, came. The Son of God came to redeem humanity. We celebrate the, the birth of Jesus, that the name Son of God, it points to his divinity. It points that he is the Son of God, that, that, that name or uh, Son of had this connotation even in, uh, in Jewish culture that it was a, 
It wasn't just saying who your daddy was. It was, it was this, this is a reflection of this person. It's a, it's a carbon copy of, it's the same characteristics, the same traits as the dad. And so saying this, that Jesus is the son of God, it's not just that he's the, like the son of God, but it's, he's got his nature, his character, his heart. And what's interesting, even if you just look through the book of Matthew, if you look through Matthew's account of the gospel, the, the name is used several times. It's used the first, tw- first two times are actually used by Satan himself. Jesus in the wilderness and the accuser comes and he's questioning. He's not, he's not even questioning his, his Jesus' divinity. He's asking him to prove it. The third time it's used is actually by a demon. So the, the first three accounts of Son of God being used, it's not even questioning Jesus' divinity. It's this accusation of, of wanting him to prove it. Uh, then the next time we see it is Jesus and the disciples in the boat. There's a storm. He calms the storm. And they're like, surely you are the son of God. Then we see, uh, we see the high priest use this in, in trying, to, um, trying to find some kind of guilt within Jesus. And then we see two different instances of uh, passerbys who are mocking Jesus on the cross use that terminology. And finally, just in Matthew, we have the centurion who oversaw the execution of Jesus after he is crucified and after he releases his spirit says, surely this was the son of God. And so we have this framing of it even used within this. And it's interesting is that the son of God points to the deity of Jesus and the demons didn't doubt it. They knew it. The disciples, when they saw, when those had this revelation, they understood that this is God in the flesh. But it was the the mockers and it was the religious that questioned that. And so while this one is a simple, it is profound. It's it's the crux of what we believe because it's not just someone came. It is God came in the flesh. Emmanuel, God with us, his only begotten son came to live a perfect life. But then what's interesting is that as he is referred to as a son of God, the most common name that Jesus uses to refer to himself is not son of God, but is actually son of man. You, you got to think like when you're, when you're growing up and you're given a nickname, usually it's not something you would choose, right? It's like uh, chubby or like, I don't know, whatever, whatever the name is that you're, you're given a name, like you never get to pick your name. It's usually something you did, a mistake you made, and like that stuck with you. Uh, but imagine getting to pick your name. You'd want to pick like something that just sounds boss, like like laser, you know, like you're an American gladiator for those who remember that back in the day. Like you'd, you'd want to pick something that's like, that's awesome that you could have on a shirt and people would want to see it. Now, why of all of the names that Jesus could refer to himself, he could go around saying, Hey, remember I'm the alpha and the omega over and over and over again. I'm the king. I'm the conquering king. I'm the eternal one. Like there's so many things that Jesus could use to refer to himself over and over and over again. But the name that Jesus chooses the most is son of man. Why? Because son of man has two parts to it. One, as son of God points to his divinity, son of man points to his humanity. That yes, it was God in the flesh. He was fully God, but he was also fully man. And that's hard for us to wrap our minds around. 
But two, it's, it's, it's not just pointing to his humanity. And he's constantly reminding people, hey, what is, what is this? Uh, people say the son of man is. What about the son of man? He's, he's pointing to his humanity, but he's also pointing to uh, prophecies in the Old Testament. In fact, Daniel chapter seven, verse 13 and 14 says, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me was like one, uh, was one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and dominion that will not, uh, sorry, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And so every time Jesus is referring to himself as the son of man, he's saying, hey, I am 100% human. I'm 100% God. And I'm the son of man that was prophesied back in the book of Daniel. He's saying, I'm the fulfillment of all that, the completion of all that. I am the son of God, the son of man come to redeem humanity. And so we're going to look at account. We're going to look actually at Luke chapter one. We're going to look at where this name uh, in the Christmas narrative is revealed to us and, uh, and how it's announced and we can learn from Mary's response. So uh, turn with me to Luke chapter one. We're going to be in starting in verse 26 um, and we're going to pull a few things, a few truths that we see in this and Mary's response. So Luke chapter one, verse 26, reading from the NIV. It says, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great. He will be called son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Let's pause there few things that jump out in Mary's response of all of this is one is that how we carry the weight matters. How you and I carry weight in our lives matter. Um, as, I, as I get older, um, I'm realizing that uh, and have back issues and stuff that I, I just can't do the stuff that I used to do. Uh, I remember even like younger me, like when I would get hurt, it would be like jumped out of a two story of something or fell out of the back of a moving pickup truck. It didn't really happen, but uh, like now it's like I tied my shoe wrong, you know, or I, I sneezed the wrong way. How do you sneeze the wrong way? You know, or I slept wrong. What is it that we get to a certain age where it's no longer just like, oh, you know what? I ran a triathlon. It's like, yeah, I kind of took a weird nap on the couch and now I'm in pain for three days. I go see a chiropractor. Like, how does it get to that point? But, but what I've realized is that it's not just about the amount of weight that we carry, but it's how we carry it. Because even like lifting weights, you can, you can lift a lot of weight in certain ways, but holding it in different ways, you can hardly hold anything. And how you and I carry the weight of life matters. How you and I carry the weight of hardship matters. 
how we carry the weight of blessing matters. For some, I've seen blessing be a, um, be a lifter to be able to allow them to share the message of the gospel and the love of Jesus. To others, I've seen blessing be a curse, be a downfall. How you and I handle the weight of calling. We talked about this in our Ephesian series, that God is a high call on our lives and we're called to live our lives in a manner that is worthy of that high calling. How do you handle the calling on your life? The calling as a, as a dad, as a wife, as a leader, as a servant, as a son of God, as a daughter of God. How do you handle the calling that God has placed you? The unique calling. How do we carry that weight? How do we carry the weight of success? The answer to that is why we have shows like what happens when you win the lottery and your life goes to a dumpster fire. Right? How we handle the weight of success, how we carry the weight of opportunity. Now, Mary's response, the angel says, greetings, you who are highly favored. And her response is concern. She's disturbed. It's kind of like if you're a parent and your kid comes up to you, mother dearest, you immediately know they want money or they did something, right? Let's be honest. And in and, and this, the, the angel greets her and her response, that word is never used anywhere else in scripture, but it's uh, to agitate greatly that she was greatly troubled because Mary is being visited by an angel, one, and two, she's understanding that there is about to be a weight on her life, that she's about to carry something, not just the son of God, but she's about to carry a responsibility, a calling on her life. Now, there's a few options. Remember, Mary's a teenager. Some accounts, some estimates, young as 13, uh, somewhere around 17 in that age range, right? We have a hard time trusting teenagers with like, I don't know, a cell phone. God, out of, out of everyone to choose, chooses a, a lowly, humble teenager to carry the savior of the world. And, and our response when the weight gets put on us, when the weight to do something, when God calls us to do something is either to freak out and run we can let the weight of it actually crush us because we don't understand it or we think it's not a big deal we, or we're crippled by fear. Or we can understand that it's an opportunity for God to work in us and through us. I, I remember early on in ministry, within my first like, couple of years doing student ministry, um, there, was a, there was a guy from my high school who passed away. And uh, he was going to the church for a little bit and the funeral was at his church, and the person who was supposed to officiate uh, to conduct the funeral got sick, and I had to do it at the last minute. And I was terrified out of my mind. I, I, had, never, I had never preached a funeral. Um, I understood the weight of, there was many who were gonna come to this funeral who had never even set foot in a church. There was many who were gonna come who, like, who were not just resistant, but opposed to the gospel. Uh, that there was, there was people who were grieving, who were hurting, who were mourning the loss of this loved one. And I remember like there was just this burden of this weight on me of like, I have no idea what I'm gonna do. And there's been several moments in ministry for me when, when the weight of a message or the weight of a responsibility just can feel crippling at times. And there's a bit of fear with it. 
most Sundays, there's a healthy amount of fear when I get up here. Because I realize I, I don't have anything to offer. This isn't out of a, a wealth of, of Matt the theologian, of Matt the expert. This is, this is out of allowing the Holy Spirit to speak through me. And I remember just this, uh, this crippling weight on me of this responsibility of preaching at this funeral. And, and the Lord's grace, of course, was sufficient. And, and we saw many of people who I went to high school with who totally went down a, a wild path through their lives, came to know Jesus that day at the funeral. But we have to have a healthy understanding of the weight of what God calls us to do. Um, verse 30, let's keep going, verse 34. Mary responds, she says, how will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin. Very logical question. She's like, I'm gonna have a baby, but there's a problem. Um, verse 35, the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word of God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your words to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. Number two, the thing that jumps out is that the strongest posture is one of humility. For you and I, the, the strongest position or posture that we can take up in our life is, is one of humility. Mary's response, uh, I would imagine she had a thousand questions. Her response to this call on her life, her response to this, this task that she's been given isn't a list of questions or of doubts or complaints or freaking out. It says, I am the Lord's servant. And then at the same time, we've got the humility of Jesus. Even the fact that he's, he's, he's not elevating himself when he refers to himself. He's always saying the son of man. We see that Jesus goes to the lowly, that Jesus brings in the, those are cast out and brings them to the table of grace. God is, Jesus is always walking in humility. He's washing his disciples' feet. Jesus, the son of God, who's divine, who's got all power and authority, yet chooses to come to earth as a son of man in all of his humanity. That's humility. In fact, we, we started our series off with Philippians 2. Uh, but right before what we read before, verse 6, Philippians 2 says, Who being in the very nature God, talking about Jesus, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's got the name above all names, the name that just whispers, that makes demons tremble. He's got the power in his name, but yet he humbled himself. And our way of doing things 
We think that power is displayed in strength. We think that, that, that you put yourself out there, that you, you, gotta, you gotta sell yourself, you gotta talk about yourself, you gotta, you gotta be confident. And the way of the kingdom is different than the way of the world. He's saying that you wanna be great, you be the least. You wanna be first, be last. God of the universe came and walked humbly. Let that sink in. It just means that we have a long way to go. He walked humbly. Number three is that not every season can be evaluated by fruit. Not every season can be evaluated by fruit. We, we live in an instant gratification world. Like if it doesn't happen immediately, it's broken or it doesn't work. We, we want instant results. We want like things now. We, we don't want to have to wait. We, we live in a world more than ever that we don't understand the concept of having to take something, put it in the dirt, cover it up, water it, walk away, and months later it produces something. That's kind of a foreign, like we understand we have our own vegetable gardens, I get it. But we don't understand that concept fully. And we tend to evaluate our lives based on the tangible fruit and results that we can see. And if there's not immediate tangible fruit and results, we think it's not working. But you cannot reap without sowing. That preparation is important. You can't just go out. You've got to till the soil. You've got to amend the soil. You've got to fertilize the soil. You've got to do stuff before you can actually even put the seed in the ground. And so we cannot, through the lens of immediate gratification, look at our life and look at the seasons and how God is leading us and what he's doing in us and say, well, if I don't see immediate results, it must be broken and God must not be working. It's part of a process. Think about it. If, if you wanted to, um, let's, let's take your finances, for instance. You, you, you want to get into a season where you are stewarding your, your, your money the way that God's word says to that you realize that everything you have, every faculty you have, every, every dollar to your name is given to you by the grace of God as a steward, as a manager. And so you want to you cut back on the frivolous spending. You want to be able to save. You want to be able to tithe. You want to be generous, all of that. And, and so you make this decision. Tomorrow morning, you, you drive past Starbucks instead of stopping, right, to spend $12 on your pinkity-drinkity or whatever, and, and you're like, I want to stop, but I am, I'm doing it. Now, your finances are not completely like turned around because you drove past Starbucks and you did the loathsome, like peasant work of making your own cup of coffee at home. Ugh, how low have we come? Instantly, your finances aren't just in order because you drove past a Starbucks one time and said no. Right? You, it, you, the, the first time you, you, you cut a tithe check or you, 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 you're a blessing to someone else, you don't go back home and be like, oh, where did all this money in my savings account come from? It's not an immediate result thing. Uh, let's, 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 let's take a different example. Let's say that you're trying to spend consistent time in God's word and praying. Right? Tomorrow morning, you open up your Bible. There may not be a booming, resounding voice from heaven. You may not walk away and have the Shekinah glory over yourself. And people are like, you've been, with, you've been in the presence of God, haven't you? Right? You may have to break up a fight between your kids while you're trying to read scripture. 
and your phone may be ringing. You have to like put it somewhere else and, and fight past distractions. Or you have a great quiet time or you read God's word and then you go downstairs. Your problems aren't fixed. It doesn't mean because you spend one day in God's word that you don't face temptation anymore or you don't have anger issues anymore. What I'm saying is it's a part of a process, right? There's steps of faith. There's, there's, this, there's this tilling, there's this sowing, there's this, there's this working at something that we don't, can't just evaluate the fruit by what we see right in front of us. But God is trying to deepen us. God is trying to work in us. And so often we think just because it's hard, God isn't in it. That's not true. God is often in the hard things. God is often in the difficult things. Because how do you quantify healing? How do you quantify forgiveness? What's, what's the visible fruit of that? There isn't any necessarily. But it's a journey that he's trying to take you on. It's a process he's trying to, he's trying to walk you through and guide you through. Is that we can't be so quick to evaluate it. I want to take us to one other account as we uh, wrap things up today. First John, uh, sorry, no, John chapter one, not first John, different book. John 1, 49. We're going to want to look at one other account there's so many others, but I want to look at one other account of, of uh, this name being used of the Son of God. Uh, so if you have your Bible with me, John chapter 1, verse 49. Uh, actually, no. Verse 43. My fault. Verse 43. It says, the next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee, finding Philip. He said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. And Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. He said, Hey, we found him. We found the Messiah, the long awaited Messiah. He's come, the one that Moses talked about, the one the prophets talked about. He's come. He's here in the flesh. Come and see him. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. And when Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said to him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How did you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. Then he added, very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. I think it's interesting. I appreciate Nathaniel's uh, hesitancy even because he, he didn't just want to go based on the testimony of others. He wanted to experience it himself. What's interesting is, is that as, as he's coming along, that Jesus knows him. I mean, he knows everything, but he, he calls him out and he says, here's an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And he also says he knows where he was before then. He sees him that he was under the fig tree and he's like, there was no one else around. How did you know that about me? You weren't near. There's also this, this phrase was used under the fig tree was an, it was an expression that was also used by rabbis of spending time in the scriptures. And so what Jesus knows about Nathaniel is that he's a man in the scriptures. Is that 
One even theory is that as he was, he was reading this, he was thinking back to, to Jacob's ladder who was under a tree, who in him was the seed. And he saw the ladder, uh, the, Jacob's ladder, and there was angels descending and ascending. And Jesus is like, look, I am the ladder. He said, you're going you're gonna to see power come on the son of man. And for, for, for Nathaniel, it was this realization. It was this revelation of seeing that he is the son of God, that he is the divine one who has come and is in the flesh. And when we understand that it's, he personally sent his own son, not just a thing he did, but himself. Like when, when, we, when we grasp this, when we understand this, when it, when, it, when it changes us, when we have a revelation like Nathaniel that you really are who you say you are, it shifts us, it changes us, especially in seasons where it doesn't look like much is happening. And number four is that a surrendered heart produces praise. Now Mary, this teenage girl who is going to carry the savior of the world. Who, who, this isn't a, a momentary thing. This, it's a journey she's going to be on for at least nine months. We know that. And then even after that, she'll, she'll watch her, her son live a perfect life for 33 years. And she'll watch him be beaten and to be crucified. And, and Mary, not knowing how every detail is going to be fleshed out, Mary, not knowing the, the total completion of the story, Mary only having the promise, only having the revelation from, from, from Gabriel. What is her response in this? Naturally, we'd be like, there's probably a lot of questions. She's probably freaking out. There's, there's, not a, there's not a what to expect when you're expecting the savior of the world. You know? You got all those, like, what to expect the first years, the second years, the... They need one for like teenage years. Somebody needs to write that. Um, but there, there's not this like, hey, just follow these four simple steps. So she's had the revelation. She's in this moment where it's not an immediate fruit she's seen. There's a high calling on her life. She's going to give birth to the savior of the world. She's gonna be trusted with the Son of God, the Son of Man. Full of all the social stigmas, full of all the ramifications of a young mother, of all of this. And what is her response? Her response after the promise is revealed and before it's fulfilled, her response is worship. Worship is not just a response of what God does for you. That's just saying thank you. Worship is a response to who he is and what he's done. Worship that is merely conditional based on the good things that he's done for you is not really worship. Worship has to align our heart with who he is. 
and Mary's response. What's interesting is Mary, Mary was, a, was a woman of the word. She knew God's word. Because in her, in her prayer, in her song that she writes, it goes side by side, Hannah's prayer in 2 Samuel. Hannah, who is barren, who, who God opened her womb and who gave her a child and she dedicated him to the Lord. There's this similarity of this song as it goes. Verse 46, and Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm, and he has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things. He has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel remember to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Her response is to remind her soul to meditate on God's faithfulness, on, on God writing the story of God pointing towards the Messiah and this fulfillment of this beginning to happen in her. It's Emmanuel that it's God with us. The Son of God came. He came to do what we could never do ourselves. To break chains, to set us free, to pay for the sins of humanity. And so as we close today in worship, I want to pray for us. Father, we thank you We thank you that our redemption wasn't just something you did. It was incredibly personal. Because you didn't redeem us with something that was flippant or insignificant or something that wasn't costly. you made a way for our redemption with something that costs you everything. You sent your son, Jesus, who has existed from the very beginning, and you sent him to be born of a virgin, to live a perfect life, whose name is high and lifted up, and as he lives his perfect life, he becomes high and lifted up on the cross to redeem a people who are trapped in death and in sin. And so, Lord, no matter what we are walking through, no matter how much we are tilling the soil and not seeing fruit, God, we trust your timing. We trust that you are perfect. If you could arrange every single prophetic syllable to be fulfilled in the person of Jesus, God, certainly 
you can ordain our steps. Certainly, you can make something out of the mess that we are in. Lord, let us shift our eyes and our heart to you. So we lift high your name, Lord. We worship you in spirit and in truth. And you be the glory. Thanks for listening to the Renovation Church Sermon Podcast. Find out more about following Jesus and building His kingdom at therenovation.church.